On behalf of Dreamers Empire, we'd like to welcome you to the Recapturing the Future podcast. From computer-driven cars to monorails, from smart houses to floating cities, from spaceports to interstellar travel, in the spirit of the innovative and forward-thinking concepts of the great world's fairs and Walt Disney's experimental prototype community of tomorrow, we cover the technology and exciting concepts of future living. So join us today as we recapture the future. sponsors of the Recapturing the Future podcast is forum software Fusion BB. Fusion BB developers packed Fusion BB with features for both site owners and users to make your community a success right out of the box. Visit us at FusionBB.com. Welcome to Recapturing the Future by Dreamers Empire. This is episode number eight. And as usual, I'm joined by Josh. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. And how are you, Josh? I'm good. Would you like to say hello to the podcast people? Hello, pod people. <laughs> and uh, also joined by Bob. Bob, how's it going? It's going well. Good to be on with uh, you guys again. Fantastic. Now, I have to say... Um, a uh, friend of Bob and I's that we knew from years ago, Dave, just took a trip to Disney. And what made it unique from anything we've done is they did the deluxe dining plan. And I have to say, I always thought it sounded crazy, but now that I've heard it done, I want to do it. Because <laughs> the deluxe is where you can do the, like other all sit-down meals, right? Yeah, and I think, I, you know the specs, Bob? It's like... Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's three sit-down meals and two snacks per day. And uh, what's nice about that is, you know, they've got all these places where it takes two tickets. Or, then you've or, got enough, yeah. Right, two credits, which I think La Cellier does now. And uh, so that would be a way to go to some of the fancier restaurants if you... Because, you know, let's face it, three sit-downs a day, that's a little much. That That's great. aggressive, even for me. Yeah, yeah. If you have one of those meals a day, you f- you feel like okay, this was an excessive day. But uh, after hearing Dave, um, you know, like Bob said, you you burn two of them at uh, the Brown Derby at Hollywood Studios. You burn two at France, I think, in Epcot, La Cellier, and so you just basically plan on maybe using your two snacks up for breakfast having a you know an orange juice and a roll or whatever and then you have a single one for lunch and then your double one for dinner hmm. it can be done so i'd like to try it let's put it on the calendar 
It's a it's a must yep. do. What what does it cost over the the one just below it, Bob? Uh, uh well, if if Dave's numbers are right, I haven't looked at it for a while, but uh, he said because I think the regular one is it's under it's like a hundred and sixty hundred and seventy for the for the plans we did the f- uh, five day, and I think this one was three hundred something. Right, so just another maybe, if I remember, 160-ish, does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. So if you think about it, because they were there for seven days, six nights, you divide that out, which maybe that was only six full days, but still, that's not much per day to get, well, sounds like quite a bit more. Yep. Yeah, and they're doing, they're doing a lot of the free dining again this year, so I think, don't you get the, the deluxe dining plan if you're at a, a deluxe resort? Oh, not free. Not free. You get the uh, you know when we're you get the dining plan as opposed to the quick service. Right. Okay. The regular dining plan. So. Oh, okay. It's and always like, a price. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's fun either way, isn't it? <laughs> that would be really nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll have to flip for that. The next one. Well, we are at episode number eight, and we had promised uh, quite a few episodes ago that we were going to begin a a series on China, and uh, today we're actually going to begin our series in China, and we're going to focus this episode on uh, modern transportation, and there's some pretty exciting things going on there, and and Josh, you've got something pretty cool to share with us. the straddling bus. What's what's that about? Okay, there's a, a company in China, and I won't attempt to to say the engineer's name, but uh, they are working on something called the straddling bus. Which the best way to describe it, it's kind of one part monorail, one part monster truck, uh, kind of a bus altogether. But essentially, if you can picture a bus that is two levels tall, the upper level is where the people will reside and ride and it can hold hundreds of people because it's big and then the the sides of it come down and actually straddle the lane on highway so the lower level cars can just go right through so in the traffic jam the bus essentially comes along and just drives right over the top of you Mm. you like so if you're sitting in your car you know the the bus is going to come right along over you so it doesn't have to stop for traffic jams okay when i first saw it I have to admit, I thought what it did was you, it was like a ferry where you parked, you right. parked your car in there. I did too. And I thought, and then I, then I had to look and I thought, man, that's not, that's, you know, that's not what they're doing. They're, you're actually they're It's driving over you and you're driving through the bus. Huh. Okay. Oh. And so the, the bus kind of, the bus kind of straddles and it either, it either can run along rails on each side or rails on one side. Um, they don't, the pictures I've seen of it, it's quite long. And so I'm not quite sure how the thing would turn. They talked about it being equipped with, with lights underneath and, and, and such so that if you were under it, when it started to turn, you'd be signaled, but I can't, I can't fathom something really long, like making a turn with things underneath it without it cutting, cutting you off. So that could be a trick. Um, you know, plus you have limitations of, you know, I think it's eight or nine foot clearance underneath, so they'd have to be careful not to uh, uh, not to run run over any large vehicles or any large vehicles running into it. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of very like eco-friendly. Uh, it runs off of 
uh, city power, has solar panels on the roof. You know, they say 1,200 people at a time, so it's got a series of cars. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, 300 passengers per car, and, and they estimate an average city that puts them into use could, could you know, have several of them and run 1,200 people at a time. At a, at a time. Hmm. What about, what if there was a pileup on the freeway? Uh, how, how would it deal with that? Right, as long as it can get over it, I guess it could still go right, right around it. But right. yeah, something obscuring one of the lanes. Um, it's one of those things. I, I think it's uh, the article I read said that they were beginning to to kind of work on building uh, the prototypes and things in 2011. I, I couldn't really find whether they actually have started building it because it definitely seems like a concept that has a little bit of tweaking to to kind of make it functional. Um, they you know, they say the advantages of it, uh, you know, are that it, it's actually a lot less expensive because it's kind of like building an individual vehicle, like a big bus or an airplane type vehicle versus building like a whole subway system for a city, which the rail infrastructure and, and things like that's, you know, uh. very, you know what I mean? Very cost where essentially this runs, this runs on a guide wire or guide, guide rail but it's not the same as building like a like a whole subway system. That that makes it make more sense now cuz yeah, that's what I was first thinking is why why not just build something above it? I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to utilize the same flow, you know, of, of the roads because that's where you want to get your volume of people through. Uh, but they're uh, but I thought why not do it, you know, like a monorail, but like you say, now they don't have to build which I know the monorail support system at Disney World is very expensive. It's like a million dollars a mile or something. You were the one who told me that. I remember that now. Yep. So you know, I, t- I agree. This this concept still seems kind of hard for me to fathom. Yeah, you know, it looks like they. Um, so it's it's straddling the uh, lanes on a on a road or a highway. So I would guess that. The, uh, the tracks that it runs on, they'll have some kind of protection so that a car can't actually, you know, go over that. Oh, rail. I see. I see. The, Maybe. Yeah, the rail, at least on one side, yeah. the one I'm looking right. at. Right. So, and it talked about ultra, and I don't quite understand this, but they talked about ultrasonic waves that would be put forth from the end of the bus that's to keep, like, high cars away from entering the tunnel. Um almost like a, they compare it to a laser ray scanning uh, for something too tall that might get too close um, that it would activate an alarm on the bus end so that it would know not to run over something too tall um, people kind of pose questions what about if there's an accident and they they actually kind of proposed a similar escape system to an airplane because you got all these people kind of up on the second floor in an emergency they, they could come down big slides just like an airplane huh because you figure 300 people, that's probably, I don't know what the average airplane holds, but it's that's probably about the same size. Right. Yeah, you know, it. Uh, I suppose if you were, if there was a traffic jam, then this thing could just keep moving and, uh, you know, just basically glide over the, the, uh, the gridlock. So I suppose that people in their cars would go, 
you know, would look at that and say, why am I sitting in this car that's not moving? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah the bus this, going, yeah, going right over the top of you. Yeah, and this bus is just zipping right over the top of me. It's uh, definitely a cool-looking concept. It looks to me like it's aerodynamic, like you would see some of the trains in, mm -hmm. um, in Asia. And uh, it just... Uh, I still have to think there's situations that are going to be hard to account for because you know how drastic a car accident can be. What if a semi is involved, you know? Right. I don't know. One article I read was kind of humorous because there, there is talk. They're, they're beginning to develop it in China, but they, the company had formed a U.S. company. So there's talk of them hoping to bring it to the U.S. And I read kind of a humorous article about, you know, watch out and and the the uh it, it said it goes at speeds uh ranging from 25 to 50 miles per hour um you know which isn't super fast but the article said it's sure to scare you know scare old ladies in a sebring convertible to death if the, if that came running over the top of you <laughs> right that would be fun wonder if they could make glass floors so you could look down on things yeah that'd be fun Another uh, train system that they're looking at in China is the CRH-X Cobra train. Um, the growth of number of cars in big cities leads to traffic jams. So, uh, of course, with China growing as it has been, uh, they're trying to deal with some of those public transportation issues. And uh, somebody has come up with a, a design of a train, and it's really after uh, speed. This Cobra train is named for the look. It looks a little bit like a Cobra. It's a very sleek design. So this Cobra train is designed to reach a maximum speed of 500 kilometers per hour. And when I first heard that, I thought that just sounds incredibly fast. But it turns out, from a little research, that that's not that wouldn't be the fastest train in the world. Uh, hmm. Uh, right now, Japan has the fastest train. Uh, it's a maglev transport, which is a means of flying a vehicle or object along a guideway by using magnets to create both lift and thrust. Uh, it's only a few inches above the guideway surface, uh, but these high-speed maglev vehicles are lifted off, li lifted off their guideway and thus they move more smoothly and quietly and require less maintenance than wheeled mass transit systems. So the, the maximum uh, speed that that train has hit, and I've watched this on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, you really should check it out, is 581 kilometers per hour or 361 miles per hour. And it's, oh. yeah, it sounds almost like a rocket when it comes by. It is just screaming. Well, the, in the picture, the picture you sent me, it's like got like a metallic, reflective look to it. It reminds me of what was that movie, the Terminator movie, or something, where it almost looks like a fluid-shaped, surreal object. Yeah, very, uh, uh, very aerodynamic. Obviously, a very modern-looking design. Um, this thing is still conceptual, so. Um, well, the article I read wasn't very clear on if it was going to come out for sure, but it uh, it certainly is being designed. Uh, France had come close with a, a train called the V150, and that's also um, 
viewable on YouTube. It was a specially configured high-speed train notable for breaking the world land record back in 2007. Uh, the train was built in France and reached a speed of 574 kilometers per hour, which is just less than that one in Japan, 357 miles an hour, on an unopened section of the LGV uh, between Strasbourg and Paris. So anyway, you know, when I read about this and I think, uh, you know, you've heard some talk in the United States now. I think uh, the Obama administration has talked about trying to federally fund some transportation stuff. And uh, in 2008, California voters approved uh, Proposition 1A, the 10 billion bond measure to provide a portion of the funds the state will need to construct a high-speed rail system from Los Angeles to San Francisco. And if I read right, I think that the speeds were going to be a little more modest, like in the 200-mile-per-hour range. But uh, I can't imagine how California could have um, moved forward on a $10 billion, um, well, it's going to be more than that, but effort on uh, knowing their situation, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how, you know, I'm not sure why why that costs so much, you know, like the light rail system they put here in Minneapolis, you know, original projections were five to 700 million and it ended up over a billion uh, to put that in. And again, that maybe highlights why the Chinese are thinking of the concept that Josh talked about earlier, which is to use existing infrastructure. But, uh, it seems that a, uh, yeah, a vehicle like this between two major cities um, would, you know, at least would be widely used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that to me makes a lot more sense than light rail. Have you been on light rail, Bob? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, we, we did it once, too. I think from the mall to downtown. And uh, nothing nothing real special, to be honest. <laughs> it's effective. It's, uh... Yeah, I mean, you know, you get a little bit of that monorail feel but uh it's like you say it really seemed to end up being ineffective in terms of numbers now i know uh china has uh already has bullet trains but i think this one is considerably faster because um, i think their bullet trains are somewhere between two and three hundred miles per hour mm -hmm. at least the japanese ones i may be thinking the japanese bullet trains yeah. And uh, we we had a chance to ride one, but we didn't do it. Oh, so I'm bum bummed now because <laughs> I didn't project we might be doing a future podcast uh, talking <laughs> about this kind of stuff. Otherwise, I surely surely would have done it when I was in Tokyo for three weeks. So yeah. Well, I don't even know what the average um, you know speed of these um, trains in China and Japan is right now. I think I think that there's probably plenty of them running in the you know, the 100 to 200 range. And so I assume some of these ones that are traveling in excess of 300 miles per hour are simply uh, in test or just trying to break a record. Right, yeah. But yeah, check, check that out on YouTube because when you see it, there's a, there's a point where there's a whole bunch of people standing at an overpass watching the train go underneath them, and it just, it just is unreal. Yeah, that would be like a... Um you know, we were at an air show a couple of weeks ago, and, and when these things descend and go, you know, kind of right at crowd level, you're just kind of amazed how fast they're moving. 
And these are moving with this train specifically uh, would be moving close to that, you know, almost uh, almost you know speed of sound type speed. Right. And you've been looking at another concept that they're looking at in China, haven't you, Bob? Yeah, uh, this one's another. Boy, you've got to hand it to the Chinese. They're they're forward thinking, mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to public transportation. The one I've been looking at is a concept train, just to solve a problem with the uh, that they have with the bullet trains now. A few episodes back, we did a, uh, well, actually the first episode, right, we talked about the People Mover, mm-hmm. which is in use in uh, Disneyland and Disney World. And part of the idea with the People Mover would be that it would uh, it would essentially never stop. So when people boarded the, uh, the People Mover cars or the People Mover train, they would actually get onto a moving platform that would be moving at the speed at least at the at the boarding speed of the people mover so it would uh, they would basically go onto the moving platform and then step onto the train that way they didn't have the bottleneck of uh, the train actually stopping and of course when you're talking people mover the speed isn't really that high anyway so you're you know you're saving some time but not a whole lot well when you're looking at the uh, uh, the bullet trains in China which are moving, uh, you know, hundreds, a hundred or hundreds of miles per hour. Uh, the time it takes for that train to, to actually stop at the station and for passengers to uh, disembark and for new passengers to board the train, you're talking about a lot of time and energy lost in that transaction. Uh, so the Chinese have been thinking about this. And so the new concept they have is a method so that the train actually doesn't have to stop to board passengers or for passengers to get off. Uh, The train, of course, wouldn't be going at full speed, but when it came into a station, it would actually slow down and uh, actually pick up passengers and drop passengers off uh, while it's still moving. So you get try to picture that in your head. How could that happen? (laughs) Uh, Get the passengers running. And quick jump onto the platform, or or is it a big, long, moving platform that's going alongside the train at you know uh, 50 miles per hour? And of course, the the practicality of that, you know, people probably have thought of that. Well, you know, the people mover used a moving platform. Why can't we just make a longer moving platform for people to board and disembark? Well, the problem is, you, know, you think about it. How long would that platform have to be? Because sometimes the boarding and the the disembarking process can take, you know, can take quite a while, especially well, when you're dealing dealing with elderly people. Yeah, Disney, you bring a stroller into the mix. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, and you don't want to have to rush people. Like, oh, oh, we're getting right. to the end of the, you know, hurry up, get that kid in the stroller and get him, <laughs> get him out on the. And so, uh, what the what they've come up with is a a little thing called a connector train. And uh, it's a small module, I guess you could call it, that people would board. As the train approached, it would actually pick up this module with people on it. And so once it picked it up, 
people then would get off the module and into the main train. Well, why don't I read the description here? Because uh, it probably probably gives a little better uh, explanation here than me trying to just wing it. So <laughs> we'll do that. Stopping and accelerating again at each station will waste both energy and time. But this brilliant new Chinese train innovation, no time is wasted to get on and off the bullet train without the train stopping. The bullet train is moving all the time. A, f a mere five-minute stop per station, and, it, and as it says, elderly passengers can't be hurried, will result in a total loss of five minutes times 30 stations, which is common in a, in a, in a route, or 2.5 hours of lost train journey time. So here's how the, uh, and you'll have to look at the YouTube uh, link. It, it uh, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. So we'll, we'll put up that link so you can see that. But to board the train, the pass passengers at a station, em they embark onto a connector cabin way before the train even arrives at the station. When the train arrives, it will not stop at all. It just slows down to pick up the connector cabin, which will move with the train on the roof of the train. And when the train is still moving away from the station, those passengers will board the train from the connector cabin mounted on the train's roof. And after fully unloading its passengers, the cabin connect or the yeah, the cabin connector cabin will be moved to the back of the train so that the next batch of outgoing passengers who want to get off at the next station will board the connector cabin at the rear of the train roof. To get off the train, as stated, after fully unloading its passengers, the connector cabin will be moved to the back of the train so that the next batch of outgoing passengers who want to alight at the next station will board the connector cabin at the rear of the train roof. And when the train arrives at the next station, it will simply drop the whole connector cabin at the station itself and leave it behind at the station. The outgoing passengers can then take their own time to disembark at the station while the train has already left. At the same time, the train will pick up an incoming embarking passengers on another connector cabin in the front part of the train's roof. So the train will always drop one connector cabin off at the rear of its roof and pick up a new connector cabin at the front of the train's roof at each station. So, so in a nutshell, this train comes into every station with one uh, cabin on top of it. It's always going to pick up a new one and drop off the other one. Exactly. Okay. So as you know, long before the station or long before the uh, train arrives at the station, uh, people will have you know x amount of time to board the connector train or the connector cabin. And uh, I, I'm sure, you know, as the train is approaching the station, of course, they'll lock down that connector cab and basically close the doors and say, okay, you're committed now. Okay. And when the train arrives at the station, um, it'll, like it says, it'll slow down and actually grab, and, and this, this connector cabin is sitting up above the train, so the train will actually grab the connector cabin. Now, you'll see it in the video you know, the first thing you might think of is, okay, so you're, if the train's moving 50 miles an hour, if that's what it slows down to, then that connector cabin's going to go from zero to 50. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. quite a little ride. Yeah, in like one millisecond. So <laughs> now that, that might be fun for kids on the train. <laughs> Please you hold know. on to the handrails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hang on tight. Now, uh, you'll see from the video that as, as, the, as the train picks up that, that, uh, that top connector cabin, uh, there's obviously a little buffer zone so that the train actually moves, the connector cabin actually moves along the top of the train and the, and it looks like the train is progressively 
I don't know, applying some kind of brake so that it, it can kind of gradually bring that connector cabin up to speed with the train. Almost, it's hard to explain, but you can see it in the video. So at least the train isn't lurching forward to the speed. The connector cabin isn't lurching forward to the speed of the of the train. It's gradually coming up to the train speed. Right. By the time it gets, you know, maybe halfway to the to the back of the, uh, the train, uh, when it gets to the next station, uh, it's got this connector cabin on top. Well, while the train is moving along onto the next station. That connector cabin, they actually move it to the very back of the train, and that's the the cabin that they'll leave. They'll uh, they'll actually drop that off before it arrives to the next station, so that those passengers can get off. And now the top of the train is free to pick up the new connector cabin at the next station. I kind of was thinking here, wouldn't it be fun? Uh, you know, some of these things we talk about, they they are planning. Some are conceptual. It sure would be fun to have a a place where we could showcase just concepts and things that are either being worked on or considered, you know, like this. Yeah, yeah, like a uh, a science museum of of, you know, futuristic technologies or something. Yeah, does it exist now? I can't I can't think of such a place. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Every once in a while at the science museum they will have something, you know, they'll have a display that explores those concepts, but it's kind of few and far between. Yeah. Maybe we could build some kind of theme park where we be easy. showcase these <laughs> these types of yeah. things. Because all we have to do is convince the people that are are really seriously, cons- you know, designing these things to that. Hey, you wanna you wanna showcase your work here, and so right, come on and we build could, your model, and maybe we could call it something like an experimental prototype community <laughs> of tomorrow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Or Epcot for short. Yeah, we could have an acronym. That's that's a that's a unique name. I like that. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder if uh, yeah, if, if anybody's thought of something like that, uh, you know, or a conference of some kind. I suppose they do that. Well, that's that's what uh, that's what this is all about. Exactly. That's my See, ultimate goal. As Bob was describing this train, I'm I'm taking every concept and trying to apply it. Apply it to the rides at Disney World. So I'm thinking, like, why can't you load the ride vehicle first? Let all those people that are slow getting on and off, and come by and pick it up. <laughs> yeah, I I had the idea a while back that you would design an amusement park so that you you got on and you were basically went from one ride to the next without ever getting off. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> and some people might get a little sick, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's true like people mover it'd be like the people mover you go ride to ride but then when you got to rock and roller coaster your people mover got picked up by the the train and you did your zero to 60 and then then it dropped you back off and you continued on over to tower of terror and it launched you up and down a few times and yeah there's got to be some way to get out of tower of terror though <laughs> i was thinking the same thing what if we don't want to go on tower of terror? Yeah. <laughs> that's got an abort button on the dashboard abort abort exactly Skip the stop. <laughs> i think if if walt disney had still been around i bet you there would have been some of that innovation in the parks you know uh more novel methods of of loading and unloading right uh, people you know Similar to the people mover. Mm-hmm. Right.
we're introducing a new segment we're simply calling the gadget segment where we're uh, talking about personal technology where they're either working on it conceptually or they actually have done it and bob you've got a piece for us this this episode uh, tell us a little bit about that yeah uh I guess we'll call this uh, maybe uh, a big gadget segment. Um, this one is a piece of personal technology, and they haven't actually built this yet, but uh, actually engineers at NASA. And it looks like in combination with uh, MIT, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology engineers, uh, are working on a uh, another personal aircraft. Now, I know we've seen a lot of... Uh, concept drawings and pictures for flying cars or uh, of course uh, back in the that was in the 60s or 70s where they came up with the jetpack and uh, they actually uh, built them and and people have flown these jetpacks uh, around in fact I think uh, when they opened up mission space uh, they did a jetpack demo I think there's old jetpack demo uh, from like the opening of Disneyland or Tomorrowland. Right. Yeah, you're right. At Disneyland as well, and uh, so they were able to uh, get another jetpack or or pull one out of storage and use it for the opening of Mission Space as well. <laughs> now the thing, of course, about the jetpack is um, it takes uh, a lot of skill to fly it, uh, and the uh, the amount of fuel that the jetpack goes through allows you about you know what a minute of flight, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's not practical in any way, and uh, that's that's really the main problem. So uh, what's this piece of personal technology? Uh, NASA's been working on something that uh, will allow uh, one person to essentially uh, go from point A to point B in in a, a transition from a helicopter to a plane kind of like the if any if you guys have ever seen the the V22 Osprey right. which is a, it, the military uses it's it's a tilt rotor aircraft so it, it's shaped like a plane but at the end of the plane is two large propellers that they they can either transition from helicopter mode to aircraft mode so they actually turn the propellers up so that uh, when it's taking off, so they so it takes off in helicopter mode, and then when it gets a certain amount of distance above the ground, they actually transition the uh, the propellers into airplane mode. So they actually they, they they tilt forward so that then the the plane can fly like it can fly like a regular plane. Well, they have a uh, NASA's been working on a uh, single person one that's actually quite small. And uh, let me read the article on it here. It's, uh, it explains it really well. It says, The engineers at NASA have combined every one of our geeky transportation dreams <laughs> into a single little vehicle called the Puffin. P-U-F-F-I-N. Kind of an interesting name. It takes off like a helicopter and flies like a plane. It can cruise at 140 miles per hour and with a boost mode, hit twice that. Oh, and by the way, it's electric. Oh. And now, if that sounds too good to be true for the moment, but give it time, because NASA unveiled the concept at the American Helicopter Society meeting in San Francisco, and this was back in January 2010. I'm actually reading this out of a Wired magazine uh, article. Now, the uh, tilt rotor 
Puffin has a flight system similar to the V-22 Osprey, which we just talked about, but instead of carrying a bunch of Marines and their gear, the Puffin carries one person in the prone position. Now, what that means is when a person boards this, um, this little personal flying machine, it's actually standing on its tail, and the person actually stands up and straps himself in. So when he takes off in helicopter mode, he's actually standing straight up and down. But when it transitions to the flight mode, the whole thing le- uh, basically goes over on, uh, on its front, and then he's actually laying down. So you're flying like Superman. Yeah, so you're flying like Superman in this thing. <laughs> so it's, it's really cool. The, it says the rotors are 7.5 feet in diameter, and the aircraft wingspan is just over 13 feet. Thanks to carbon composite construction, the Puffin weighs in at less than 400 pounds, including the lithium phosphate batteries. So now this is without the person in it. So sure. I read somewhere where it's, it's uh, three, like 350 pounds. And uh, uh, since the uh, motors are electric, uh, apparently this lithium phosphate must be a new technology that uh, allows you to have a lot of power probably on a charge. Now the Puffin is designed to stand on its tail which serves as the landing gear. Once the Puffin transitions to horizontal flight, the pilot can cruise at more than 140 miles an hour as we said before. The The projected range is 50 miles on a charge. And it says, yeah, that's not much, but using electricity means Puffin's power plant won't be limited by air density. NASA says it should be able to climb under full power to around 30,000 feet. Now, I'm sure it won't actually fly that high. (laughs) Before the battery pack would be depleted enough to require coming back down. Okay, so that's an extreme case. And then it says, oh, then they they do explain uh, why is it called the Puffin. If you've ever seen a Puffin on the ground, it looks very awkward. The wings look too small to fly, and that's exactly what our vehicle looks like says Mark Moore, an aerospace engineer at NASA's Langley Research Center. But it's also apparently called the most environmentally friendly bird because it hides its poop. (laughs) 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 Uh, Leave it to Wired. Uh, (laughs) And uh, we're environmentally friendly because we have essentially no emissions. Also, puffins tend to live in solitude, only ever coming together on land to mate. (laughs) And ours is a one-person vehicle. So uh, they the uh, and like I said, we'll put up a, uh, a link to the video uh, on the site. They haven't actually built one yet, but they're currently working on a one-third size demonstrator vehicle, and so they'll do a little bit of testing with that. But you'll see on the video, it's 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 a it's a pretty clever concept. Uh, person essentially climbs in closes the door and straps himself in, and then uh, once he takes off, uh, when they show the plane transitioning from helicopter mode to to airplane flight mode, it looks like a pretty smooth transition. And they don't say it here, but I'm going to have to guess that they probably will have uh, computerized technology that handles that transition. That was going to be my question, because you said something earlier about how hard it was to fly some of the older model personal aircraft, so... I assume because I watched it, it seemed to me that 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 would have to be computerized. It would be too hard to navigate, wouldn't it? Right. I think uh, 
the, the transition because you really you know you really have a lot of concern about aerodynamics when uh, you're transitioning from helicopter mode to plane mode. In other words, you can't you know you can't make the transition too quick, otherwise you won't have enough airspeed <laughs> to support flight. And uh, and I suppose you don't want to go too slow because then you got some stall worries. Uh, so <laughs> my guess would be that when the person takes off, they probably will, you know, push a button. It'll go to a certain height, and when they're cleared of of all the obstructions, they probably just push a button, and then the computer it tells the computer to now transition us to from uh, helicopter mode to you know to horizontal flight. And it, and it won't do it if there's not enough airspeed or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the flying like Superman would be a lot of fun. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So the person is essentially laying on their stomach. <laughs> Did you think it looks like it'd be feel a little claustrophobic? Yeah, it <laughs> I does kind of look that way. <laughs> well, I have a like a like a Disney Pixar tie-in. If you you know painted the wings green and kind of gave it a Buzz Lightyear look, it'd be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, there you go. How do you find? Um, you know, you know this a lot better than I do, Bob. But how do you find an airspace um, path for vehicles like this, so you're not worried about uh, smaller aircraft or that sort of thing? Yeah, I'm not sure what the, um, you know, because the FAA regulates airspace. Now, one thing I do know is the uh, like people who fly ultralights. And we see a lot of those flying around our house, actually, because I think people fly ultralights up and down the Crow River Valley kind of here. And uh, ultralights don't require a license. So anybody who builds one can just go to a farm field and take off in their ultralight. Now, I'm not sure what uh, height they're limited to. And there's there's probably a buffer zone around, you know, the airports uh, where they have to stay out of. So my guess is if you had a personal flying machine like this, uh, they would probably just be a limited altitude uh, so that they wouldn't be in the standard air traffic lanes. So do you think it would be more for fun than it would be for – because in the, in the video, they try to, you almost get the sense, or I did at least, of going to the office and having a spot on your, on your building where you could land and – yeah, yeah, that's definitely the. That, it, it appears that's the picture they were trying to show in the video. Right, was uh, going from home to the office, <laughs> and it looks like uh, you know you can't really see it clear, but there's a. It almost looks like a heads-up kind of display is below the person on the glass canopy. And so there's probably uh, the pro- the plan is probably for some kind of LCD LCD type equipment this you know display uh, below the person that he can check out you know keep tabs on his altitude his airspeed and the idea that it's it's electric uh, you know takes because because uh, the the first concern that people have with personal flying machines is reliability because you know an engine problem is uh, is a real problem. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't look like there's a lot of recovery in that if right. you lost your propulsion. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, actually, the V twenty two Osprey—they've had a lot of trouble with that plane, uh, bringing it into service. They've had a number of them crash, and a lot of people have died. Yeah, at uh, in that kind of plane, and I think it's because you know, at least with a regular plane, you can—if you lose your engines, you can you can glide them. Uh, right. 
And with a helicopter, if it loses its engine, there's uh, there's a maneuver you can do to land them actually, uh, which involves which involves uh, you know um, getting the rotors to turn, you know, just from the air. Mm. This they'd have to poke some holes in the side, so at least if you lost, you could stick your arms out and start flapping. Because <laughs> <Flapping, yeah. laughs> it looks like that tight, like you'd have to pop your arms out. <laughs> but now the. Like I said, the benefit with a, an electric motor is, uh, you know, you take away a lot of the complexity that's in a gas-powered motor. And so, you know, generally those motors will, will run a lot, a lot longer. But if you, if, if you said it had a 50-mile uh, radius or whatever, a 50-mile, that's all it could go? That's what it says, 50 miles. So what happens if you get up there and you run out of power? Or is it smart enough to say, oh, you're running low, we're going to have to force land you? Or Yeah, that would be my guess. 